Well, if you would take your Bibles with me and return to the book of Leviticus, we'll be looking at Leviticus chapter 19 this morning. Leviticus chapter 19, as usual when we're dealing with relatively lengthy chapters, we're going to read through as we go. Sometimes through our study of Leviticus, we've noted the fact that the inspired text deals with sensitive issues, which may understandably make the reader, not to mention the preacher, a bit uncomfortable, a bit uneasy. The fact that Leviticus was written 3,500 years ago or so makes the issues which it addresses no less relevant for us as they were to ancient Israel. The applications may be different, but the issues remain the same. We've seen this as recently as last week when God, through Moses, addressed the issue of what holiness looks like in regard to sexual purity, which for the people of God in every age is to stand in stark contrast to the world. When Moses first communicated the commands of God to the Israelites, they lived among a Canaanite culture which was rife with immorality. That same imperative concerning sexual purity comes to the people of God today as we consider the truth of Solomon's word. There is nothing new under the sun. Chapter 19 now moves on to deal with other aspects of life when God's people are surrounded by alien cultures or like the people of God today living among alien cultures and having those aliens come and live among them. As we examine Leviticus 19 today, we find subject matter just as relevant and just as sensitive, perhaps, as any we have seen thus far. One of the things that we've declared repeatedly over and over again throughout my ministry here at Red Mills is, we don't do politics. That is, no one is going to stand in this pulpit and tell you that there is some God-ordained tax rate or that this particular foreign policy in regard to Denmark should be adopted by our country. But when we say we don't do politics, that doesn't mean that we never speak about biblical truth which the world might consider to be political. You see, the world doesn't get to define what is political and what is Bible. God defines that. This morning, I clicked on a couple of random news sites and immediately saw the following headlines. A disaster. Biden administration sets new border record as illegal crossings surge. Biden White House releases record border numbers late Friday. 
migrants in New York City pocketing $3,000 a month working illegally while the city foots their bills. Texas to sanctuary cities. Gear up. More migrant buses are on the way. Now, I'm not going to comment on any of those headlines. I mention them only to demonstrate that this passage we are looking at this morning is a direct refutation of the silliness I so often hear, which is that we need to make the Bible relevant. We don't. We can't. The Bible is already relevant. In every age, in every situation, the Bible, the Word of God, is relevant. The real question is this. Are we going to try to force the round peg of Scripture into the square hole of our predetermined ideas and philosophies? Or are we going to allow the Scripture to say what it will say and then conform our thinking and our actions to the Word of God? I'll give away the game right from the start. You might have picked it up from the headlines I quoted. Leviticus 19 deals with how one goes about truly loving one's neighbor and how one goes about loving those who are strangers who dwell among them, while at the same time retaining loyalty and fidelity to the one true God. Now here's the problem. If you come to this passage looking for confirmation of what you already believe, you're going to find it. Liberals can come and have come to this passage and found within it support for their agenda. Verse 9, for instance. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit in your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And some have come to that passage and said, well, there is the basis for the welfare state. That's a liberal passage right there. No, it's not. It's a biblical passage. It's God speaking, so it's a true passage. Truth is neither liberal nor conservative. Truth is true. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, conservatives can come to this chapter and find things that they find useful. Look at verse 15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. And the conservative would come and say, absolutely, rugged individualism. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. 
and to use the Scripture in either way is wrong. Because we don't use Scripture to advance our agenda. We come to the Scripture so that we will be in harmony with God's agenda. That's what matters. A saying which was very popular in the World Council of Churches, in which anyone outside of that group, which many outside of that group criticized, was the world sets the agenda. That was and always will be wrong. God sets the agenda. But when we come to the Scripture in the way I've just described, we get that turned around. We're using the Scripture for our own purposes. And that is not our place. So I won't be preaching politics today. As always, I will be preaching Bible, the inspired, inerrant Word of God. And if, we, if what we find here conflicts with your political vision, then the problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with your vision. Let me outline the passage before we start reading through it. You're going to see a prologue in the first two verses. And by the way, let me give you a challenge here at the outset. By the time we're through, count how many times you see the phrase, I am the Lord. Or some version of it, I am the Lord your God. That phrase is the motivating phrase throughout the chapter. It is the basis for all the commands that we find given to us here. There are numerous thou shall and thou shall nots in this chapter. And they all flow out of the authority of God himself. Do this, don't do that, because I am am the Lord your God. So look for those. First thing we see in verses 1 and 2, then, is the prologue. In verses 3 through 10, we see holiness described in terms of observable obedience to certain commands, both commands that we might call first table commands and second table commands, as we refer to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, as you know, came in two tables or tablets. The first tablet had to do with the commands in regard to men and God. The second tablet, men and other men. And that's going to come out very clearly here in verses 3 through 10. Love to God and love to neighbor. We are going to see holiness then specifically manifested in observable obedience to God's command regarding how we love Him and how we love others. And then thirdly, verses 11 through 18, we see Moses give us the concrete content of what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves. 
intangible actions, in other words. It is there in verse 18, among other places, that you see why Leviticus 19 is probably the most well-known chapter of Scripture, certainly of Leviticus, by people who don't even know they know it. Because it's here in Leviticus 19 that we find the words of Jesus, the two great commandments, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And we discover Jesus was just quoting Leviticus. If you look at verses 19 through 31, you see the fourth section of this passage where holiness is looked at from the standpoint of believers separating themselves from that which is unholy, there's no possible way that we could deal with all of the specific particulars in that section. But as always, we want the main point to stand front and center, and we'll try to see that this morning. And then finally, in verses 32 through 37, we see the fifth section of the passage. And here we see holiness described in terms of the way that people treat two categories of other people. The first are gray heads. How do we treat the elderly? And secondly, the strangers dwelling in our midst. In other words, how do we treat those who are not us? So let's go back to the beginning and work our way through. Obviously, we can't address, we can't devote as much time as we would need in order to go and, and do a thorough exposition of everything in this chapter. So let me walk you through five things that we learn in this passage. And the first you see right here in the prologue, the Lord tells Moses in verse 2 to speak to the congregation and tell them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Holy. In other words, we see, just as we saw last week in Leviticus 18, a motivation to holiness. And that motivation is grounded not in any practical advantage of this or that behavior, but it is grounded in the person of God. The Scripture does not say, do these things, because if you do these things, your life is going to be better. Your life will be easier. It will be more prosperous. That's not the rationale. The rationale is very simple and very direct. For I am the Lord your God. We are to be holy because God is our Lord. Because we are created in His image. Genesis chapter 1, we're told that man was created in the image of God. One of the things that we do as image bearers is to reflect the glory of our Creator. At least that's why we were created. God says through Isaiah, I've created everyone for my glory. How do we glorify God? By being holy as He is holy. 
As the Creator is holy, so His redeemed people are to be holy. They have been chosen by grace out of this world in order to be holy. And so this God motivation to holiness is stated here at the very beginning of the passage. It's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. Why? Paul doesn't say you were chosen before the foundation of the world so you'd be saved. He says you were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. That is the purpose for your existence. God is deploying us into the world as living character representatives. And if we are to bear the right representation of who he is in the world, then we must be holy. And so at the very outset, we see this God motivation to holiness. And following upon this statement concerning the motivation for holiness, Moses then gets very specific. There are concrete, tangible examples of what it means to be holy. We're not left with some vague abstraction concerning holiness. The holiness which God is going to speak through Moses in this chapter is grounded in life. It's about the everyday, the mundane, the practical. It's interwoven with the whole fabric of who we are day by day by day. It's manifest in our family relationships. It's manifest in our business relationships. It's manifested in who we do and do not associate with and how we associate with those with whom we do associate. Let's take a look at how this falls out for us in the next section of chapter 19. Holiness is specified in terms of obedience to the Ten Commandments, in terms both of love for God and love for our neighbor. Watch the flow of the argument here in verses 3 through 10. Every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. Now when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it and the next day, but what remains until the third day shall be burned with fire. So if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an offense. It will not be accepted. Everyone who eats it will bear his iniquity, for he has profaned the holy things of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his, pers- from his people. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Now notice what we're seeing here. Verse 3, 
reverence for mother and father. Keep my Sabbaths. Verse 4, don't turn to idols or make molten gods, molten images. And then you have this long section from verses 5 through 8, which describe again the way the offering of the peace offerings is to be carefully done in accord with God's commands. And then you look again at verse 9 and the command that when you reap your harvest, you shall not gather the gleanings or reap the corners and verse 10, you shall leave them for the needy and the strangers. So what is holiness supposed to look like? Well, Moses tells you here in verses 3 through 10 that these are the way that holiness is manifest by God's people. And where do these specific things come from? Right out of the Ten Commandments. Over and over, we see direct and indirect references back to the Decalogue. If you look at verses 9 and 10, we see a very practical outworking of something that is stated in different ways, and that is that holiness entails caring for the poor among you. This is the people of God, Israel, and they are not to neglect those who are poor among them. You see a new covenant manifestation of this beginning in the book of Acts and continuing through the epistles. We are to do good to all men, but especially who? Those of the household of faith. So their holiness is manifest in those observable, practical, tangible ways of honoring parents and keeping the Lord's days and worshiping the only true God in the way that he has commanded and caring for the poor among them so that both the first table of the law and the second table of the law are providing practical manifestations of a person who is living holy like God. But Moses doesn't stop there, of course. He goes on, and this is the third section of the chapter, beginning with verse 11 and coming down through verse 18. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God, I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so there, we find that famous command, which of course Jesus says is the second great commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The first 
commandment, love the Lord your God. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Notice how that command, that great commandment, that second great commandment is defined for us from verses 11 through 18. How do you fulfill that command? Well, we're given very specific instructions. When we hear the word love, this is part of the problem that we have, we have been conditioned to think of emotion. It's the first thing that typically pops into our minds. We think in, of love in terms of feeling, but notice how love is defined here. It is not described as emotion. It is an action. It is what you do. Moses is giving us the content of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And once again, he's taking us right back to the Decalogue. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You should not lie to one another. Don't swear falsely by my name. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. You shall not oppress your neighbor. And then that oppression is defined. You don't rob him. You don't hold back the rightful wages of a hired man. Verse 14, you shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind. And notice that interesting phrase, and you'll see it twice in this passage. Not cursing a deaf man and not putting a stumbling block before the blind man is equated with what? The contrast is fearing the Lord, revering the Lord. You can't do one and do the other. You cannot treat people maliciously, particularly people who have little defense and claim to fear God revere him right revere god is the same as fearing god if you fear god you're not going to curse a deaf man and you won't place a stumbling block before a blind one so notice how obedience to god in love to neighbor in these passages is intimately connected with fearing and revering god and 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 we need to understand this Loving God and fearing God go together. They're inseparable. You can't fear God unless you love Him. If you don't fear God in terms of holy reverence for God, it can only be because you don't have a clear understanding of who He is. And if you don't have a clear understanding of who He is, then you can't love Him. You might claim to love some imaginary deity that you have made up in your own mind, but you're not loving the triune God of Scripture. Look at what else the Lord addresses. Verse 15 says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Legal matters. Justice is what matters. And we don't tip the scales for anyone. 
The nature of justice does not change according to the person who is brought before the court. Verse 16, you shall not go about as a slanderer. You shall not act against the life of your neighbor. Verse 17, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You hate someone in your heart, what are you? A murderer according to Jesus. Think Jesus knew Leviticus? Well, Jesus wrote Leviticus. It's his word. He knew how all of these things fit together. You shall not take vengeance. You shall not bear any grudge. So in this section, what we see here is a definition of what it means to love your neighbor. And Moses is saying God's people are to manifest their holiness first by loving him and loving our neighbor, by refraining from theft, by not dealing falsely, not lying, not oppressing anyone, not mistreating the handicapped, not being partial, not slandering. In all of these ways, we become holy as God is holy. We reflect that holiness in our own lives. And what is the command beneath the commands? Show the love of God by loving your neighbor, by dealing justly with your neighbor, by not robbing your neighbor, by not dealing falsely or inappropriately with your neighbor or taking advantage of your neighbor. So here, love of neighbor is defined in terms of the practical, practical and tangible because God is God. Verse 12, I am the Lord. Verse 14, I am the Lord. Verse 16, I am the Lord. Verse 18, I am the Lord. How many times does he have to say it? A lot, apparently, because he keeps repeating it, and he keeps repeating it because he knows who we are, and he knows we're dense, and he knows we need to have it pounded into us again and again and again. If you look at verses 19 through 31, here we're seeing holiness in terms of separation. Separation from that which is unholy. You are to keep my statutes. You shall not breed together two kinds of your cattle. You shall not sow your fields with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material mixed together. Now if a man lies carnally with a woman who is a slave acquired for another man, but who has in no way been redeemed nor given her freedom, there shall be punishment. They shall not, however, be put to death because she was not free." He shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord to the doorway of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. The priest shall also make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin which he has committed, and the sin which he has committed will be forgiven him. When you enter the land and plant all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. 
In the fifth year, you are to eat of its fruit, and that, that it yields may increase for you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat anything with the blood, nor practice divination or soothsaying. You shall not round off the side growth of your heads, nor harm the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a harlot, so that the land will not fall to harlotry, and the land become full of lewdness. You shall keep my Sabbaths and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. So we start out with this section of the chapter with those strange ceremonial commands about mixed cattle and mixed crops and mixed garments. And this is nothing new, of course. The idea there is that the people of God are going to manifest their holiness by keeping ceremonial distinctions intact, which God has established for animals, for plants, for fibers. This was going to be one of the things, or several of the things, that makes them separate from the people around them. But then from that point on, all the rest of the commands from verse 20 down to verse 31 are designed to show how the people of God are to be distinct in their behavior from the pagan Canaanite culture into which they were going. In that culture, slave women were taken advantage of sexually. And the commands of verse 20 down to verse 22 are designed to protect the vulnerable slave woman who found herself within Israelite culture. Likewise, all of the other commands are designed to keep Israel distinct from the pagan Canaanite culture, to be separate from that which is unholy, which we've seen stressed again and again and again, throughout the book of Leviticus. Whether it be how we're dealing with the land and what kind of fruit we're eating and when to what we're dealing with in regard to the occult. These commands come because God's people are to be separate from the world around them. And finally, if we look at verses 32 to 37, here we find holiness manifest in our treatment of the elderly and the stranger. You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged, and you shall revere your God, I am the Lord. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you are aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt. You shall thus observe all my statutes and all my ordinances, and do them. I am the Lord. 
God's people are to manifest God's holiness by honoring the elderly, by loving the stranger as themselves, in dealing justly with everyone. Look at this in verse 32. You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged, and you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. There's the second time in this passage that we come across this statement about revering the Lord God. It is directly related to, almost equated with honoring those who are aged, treating well those who are elderly. When God says, you shall rise.